I tried to read War and Peace in the summer of 2011. It's a long book, 361 chapters. It's easy to lose the plot. There are these extended digressions about military tactics and the mores of Russian aristocracy. But it's important. It gets quoted a lot. It's fun to tell people you've read it. The book of Isaiah is like the war and peace of the biblical canon. It's important. It's quoted in the New Testament all the time. But it's really long. 66 chapters. And it's hard to follow. Some of its history, some of its prophecy, some of its poetry. It's written with care. And oftentimes the message is in the minutiae. There are these subtle signs that point to larger themes. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah 35, 9, which we just heard read, uh, Isaiah is talking about this mysterious highway. And he describes those who will journey upon it. Only the redeemed will walk there, he says. Why is that a big deal? Well, in chapters 1 through 34... Isaiah has mostly referred to the people of God as the remnant of Israel. And now, all of a sudden, they're the redeemed, and God is their redeemer. And this is the first time, I think first of 24 times, that word will appear throughout the rest of the book. Now, what does it mean, redemption? Well, in the Old Testament, redemption describes offering sorely needed help on the basis of family ties. Leviticus 25, verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. To say God is your redeemer, therefore, is to say something like God has taken responsibility for you. God will watch over you like a loving, kind, wise father. God will care for you with the ferocity and compassion of a loving mother. Commentators point out that the introduction of the term redeemed here signals a larger change. From now on, Isaiah will couch what's promised to Israel, not in terms of a recovery of what's been lost, but about something new that God is going to do for his people. Something different, something unexpected, something far better and sweeter than they would have ever anticipated. I want to try and speak to the theme of newness this morning. Advent is, of course, about waiting and patience and preparation. It's also about embracing interruption. We hear these bizarre descriptions of Christ's return, the strange, unpredicted mercy of the incarnation, and the tensions and surprises and foretastes of life 
between those times. I want to bear witness to God's ability to break the cycle, to dispel the myth of the eternal return, to do something new in our world and in your life. Two simple points. Flowering faith and happy holiness. Flowering faith, happy holiness. I believe those are two things, new things, that God wants to do among us. Flowering faith. When people imagine Los Angeles, they often think of beaches and augmented celebrities. What people do not realize is that much of Southern California looks and feels like a desert. It's brown, arid, hot, lifeless. And that's why what happened this spring was such a big deal. Much of the Southern California wilderness experienced a super bloom. Tens of thousands of people came to see those brown, arid hills transformed into a living Van Gogh landscape. And we know this because every single one of them put their photos on Instagram. <laughs> that term, super bloom, is real, by the way. It describes a phenomenon in which an unusually high proportion of wildflowers blossom at the same time. And it's caused by a period of prolonged dormancy. Several different types of seeds suddenly and contemporaneously wake up. It's oftentimes preceded by a long rainy season and an unusually bitter winter that locks the moisture in. In a word, it's harsh conditions over several years that prepares the ground for the botanical fireworks of a super bloom. When the Bible, the desert, is oftentimes presented as a place of testing and trial. It's somewhere God may lead you, but it's not somewhere you'd ever want to be. Water is so hard to come by, you have to strike it out of a rock. Well, here, in Isaiah 35, that picture is transformed. God has done this new thing in the desert. It's blossoming. It's not a place of scarcity and struggle and suffering. It's teeming with life. It's filled with shouts of joy. It's resplendent with the glory and majesty of God. I love the peculiar reference in verse 7. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. In the words of one commentator, this is describing the reversal of a settled, inhospitable landscape. What does this vision mean for us? For burning sand to become a pool, for parched land to become glad, this is a poetic imagination, imagining of the, of the end of this present evil age and its blight on creation. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Who knows that song? 
Joy to the world? Yeah, you guys were nodding, but you weren't saying anything. I don't think he knew. In Isaiah 35, the, the burgeoning wilderness, finally released from its bondage to decay, is shouting its welcome into the glorious future of new creation. The dirt and the rock and the trees of this planet will be transformed. This is part of the reality that we celebrate on Christmas, the feasts of the incarnation. Jesus enters our creaturely condition and makes everything he touches more worthy. There's also the, the wilderness of the soul, the arid terrain of unbelief. Gregory of Nyssa was a 4th century bishop and theologian in modern-day Turkey. And he was writing on this passage, and he said, it's not only to nature that Isaiah proclaims tidings of joy, but he speaks also by figure of the desert of the soul that is parched and unadorned. I wonder how many of us can relate to that, the soul being parched and unadorned. Our souls feeling like places where jackals lay, our inhospitality to the things of God has grown settled, where we once found it natural to trust and rejoice and receive. We're now uncertain, and we wonder if sometimes, if we're honest, We should just move on. I believe that God can do a new thing. I believe that God can make our souls as conducive to chastened but robust faith as Lebanon and Carmel were to forests and flowers. Maybe the conditions have been unusually harsh. Endless rains, cold winters. Maybe it's paving the way for something great. This is what God wants to do, bring forth a flowering of faith like crocus bursting into bloom. When this new garden that was once a desert, there will be a road a highway. For us modern urban people, this is jolting. A highway through a garden? Ugh. How did that get through city planning? Well, picture like the High Line in lower Manhattan. This highway is beautiful. And it makes what was once a difficult, grueling journey peaceful and invigorating. And the picture is of God's beloved, long-displaced people returning home in triumphant procession. And we're told directly that this highway is a kind of metaphor. To walk upon it is tantamount to following Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And there are some promises here. We're told, for one thing, that on this road we will be kept safe. First Peter, I think it's chapter 5, 
says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But there's no lion on this road, nor any ravenous beast. Our good shepherd prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. We see also that the unclean will not journey on the way. Now, that word unclean is foreign for us, maybe, but it would have referred to those who had been ritually defiled or otherwise disqualified from appearing before God. In our gospel reading, John the Baptist sends uh, messengers to Jesus to ask, are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus, in effect, says, have you read Isaiah 35? Do you know what's happening? The lame are leaping, the mute are shouting. Even those who have leprosy, Jesus says, are being cleansed. They're on board too. They're walking alongside me. What we have on this highway, in other words, is not a collection of of spiritual all-stars. The wisest and the purest among us fast-tracked to heaven like the express lane on Mopac. This is the league of the guilty, the foolish, the unclean, who have been rescued by Jesus, who are clinging to his every word and have now taken their place on the road to joy. Paulson Polikotdil, the Pentecostal minister and seminary professor in Pune, <clears throat> India, That's a city of over seven and a half million people that I had never heard of until this week. I say that to my shame. Well, he points out that the Hebrew words overtake and flee in verse 10. Gladness will overtake them. Sorrow will flee away. Those are military terms. You overtake the enemy. You flee to save your life. And therefore, this passage is this Beautiful promise that those who move through life in the wake of Christ's victory will be pursued, even captured by joy. While sadness, weariness, regret, disappointment, frustration, resentment, loneliness run for their lives. God Created us in joy, Frederick Buchner says. God created us for joy. And in the long run, all the darkness in the world and in ourselves cannot separate us from that joy. Because whatever else it is to be created in God's image, it means that even when we cannot believe in him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by him, His mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. Come on, people. That is good stuff. (laughs) I didn't write that so I can say it. Wow. Happy holiness. Gladness. Holy and happiness are not words that are oftentimes paired together, at least in, like, man on the street. Holy people, maybe they're self-righteous. 
Maybe they're embittered because other people aren't as holy as them. Well, here is the promise that following Jesus will make you neither acrimonious nor tired. It will leave you neither complacent nor weird. Jesus will make you glad. He will crown you with life-affirming, despair-crushing joy. Flowering faith, happy holiness. These are the new things God wants to do. And in a master stroke, Isaiah anticipates our excuses for not getting in on it. I'm too busy. I'm juggling so many responsibilities. God will strengthen your feeble hands. I'm too tired. I'm running to and fro, back and forth. I'm barely able to stand. God will steady the knees that give way. I'm scared, anxious. What if I'm disappointed? God will come with vengeance to thwart anything that will get in your way. God will come to save you, to give you the strength and energy and conviction you lack. Remember Toni Morrison's Beloved? There's a character in the novel, Baby Suggs. She's the spiritual matriarch of her community. She's described as an uncalled, unrobed, unanointed preacher. She has nothing left to give but her heart after a lifetime of slavery. Early in the book, there's a description of folks who come out to hear her preach in what's called the clearing. And she exhorts the people to see themselves not as the slave owners see them, but as God created them. And she tells them, this is, a, this is the line, the grace you have is the grace you imagine. And when baby Suggs could say no more, Morrison writes, she stood up, started to dance what the rest of her heart had to say. And those gathered around her began to sing. The grace you have is the grace you imagine. This is the gift of Isaiah's words to us. They give us hope. They nurture that sacred imagination. They remind us what is possible for humankind because of Jesus Christ. They implant deep within our hearts, a yearning for God's kingdom. I can say no more, but don't worry, I'm not going to start dancing. <laughs> but I want to encourage you, when you come forward for Holy Communion, or in the rest of our service, when we sing songs of praise, lift up your voice, enter Zion with singing, let gladness and joy overtake you. Let sorrow and sighing flee away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.